Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Today's episode has been made possible through the generous support of Bright Peak Financial, an award-winning not-for-profit supporting Christians on their journey to financial strength. Go to brightpeakfinancial.com to make your dream happen. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour. Living the Eternal Way, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living today with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. To ask questions or join in the discussion, email us at the Yoga Hour at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, here's your host, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to the Yoga Hour, a time to open our hearts and minds to the infinite. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo sitting in for Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien while she's away. Today I'll be sharing some insights and time-tested practices from the ancient system of Kriya Yoga. Yoga is a very familiar word to most people these days, although Many people associate it only with exercise, and Kriya Yoga is a uh, much broader uh, system of practice and philosophy for uh, spiritually conscious living today. Um, Today, our topic is Conscious Companionship, How to Be a Compassionate Presence. So what does it mean to be a conscious companion? Being with someone who is suffering a loss is ill or dying, can be an intense and intimate experience. How does our relationship with our own body, mind, and spirit affect our ability to be present for others? And how can we take care of ourselves so that we can be that compassionate presence for others? My guest today, as we discuss many of these uh, questions, is Frank Ostaseski, founder of the Meta Institute and co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. He's one of America's leading voices in contemplative end-of-life care. 
2001, he was honored by His Holiness the Dalai Lama for his years of compassionate service to the dying and their families. He's the author of Being a Compassionate Companion audio series and the soon-to-be-published book, Five Invitations. You can find out more about Frank's work at the website metainstitute.org. Meta is M-E-T-T-A, institute.org. Frank will also be the keynote speaker at the upcoming Sheltering Tree Benefit at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment on August 6th. This benefit will support the work of CSE's Compassionate Care Ministry, which offers a compassionate companion to CSE community members who request support, and also provides an educational program designed to train volunteers to be a supportive presence to people undergoing life changes and transitions. You can find out more details about uh, the um, Compassionate Care Ministry at csecenter.org. So, Frank, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm delighted that you could join us today. Oh, Laura, I'm very happy to be with you and to be with your listeners. Good. So before we begin to enter our dialogue about how to be a compassionate presence, let's begin with a moment of meditation. Om. Let's begin by turning our attention within. Our breath is a wonderful tool to help us bring our attention and awareness to the present moment, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. So let's start by taking a fully conscious breath, just noticing as we inhale and exhale. Not trying to change our breath, just noticing its natural flow. Cool air entering the nostrils and warm air flowing out. In this moment, we can dive within and open our heart to the divine. One reality called by many names is the support and substance of all that is. Right where we are, right here and now, this divine essence is present. As you, as me, as everyone. within us, between us, and all around us. Just by being present now and noticing, we can rest in this essence of our being. We notice thoughts and feelings as they arise and as they pass away. We become aware of our essential nature beyond words and thoughts, beyond all change, beyond thought and sensation, pure existence being. We feel the peace that emanates from the essence of our being 
we allow it to pervade the mental field, the emotional nature, and the physical body. We abide in this peace and let it overflow as blessing for all beings everywhere. Once again, Frank Ostaseski, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Let's start our discussion. Good. Go Let's start our discussion with companionship itself. So, oftentimes we are afraid to be with someone who is suffering, in fear that we won't know what to say or what to do. So, let's talk just about being that companion, the companionship itself, the ability to be present with someone uh, when we are with a, a person who's suffering. How important is that? Well, it's it's absolutely essential. Um, but I, I think at the beginning, it's useful to understand that we already know how to do this, that we've been doing this for centuries, reaching out in the darkness, caring for one another. Uh, we know this in our bones. Um, we've extended a helping hand in hundreds of ways, thousands of times. And, and um, I think we can have confidence in this. We can have confidence in our kindness and in our innate generosity and compassion. Um, it's just that in the last several decades, we've made taking care of each other, particularly caring for the dying, into something sort of technological and uh, professional. And um, we've forgotten. We've forgotten. And so we've become frightened. And I think uh, um, programs like this one have an opportunity to help us remember, remember what we already know, uh, that uh, we can embrace someone else's suffering as our own. So I think that's the most important thing to say at the very beginning. Mm, that's lovely. Absolutely, the um, technological interventions are, um, you know, are, qu- are quite remarkable. You know, not just you know for those who are dying, but you know for um, you know other people who are you know going through various treatments. Um, so when we're with someone who's suffering. Our intellect may tell us to do something, to make things, try and make things better or fix mm. things. This doing or this need to do on our part is usually more about us than about the other person. Um, we're trying to make things all right so we can feel better. We might get so caught up in our own memories or fear that we're not really truly present for the other person. So, as you as you um, have done your work with conscious, you know, companionship, what what does it mean to you to be a conscious companion? Well, you know, a few years ago there was a whole lot of talk out there about conscious dying, um, mm. and and we can speak about that. But I, I actually think conscious companionship is is far more important because that's ongoing. You know, we um, we can always continue to offer this to not only to the person we're with in that moment, but to others in the future. So um, I think, uh, for me, I like this word service very much. It's an old word, you know, service. Uh, but I, for me, it really fits this, um, this particular relationship of being with someone who's sick or perhaps dying. Um, and that, for me, the aspect of that which is so important is the mutual mutuality of the situation, the, the mutual benefit that comes from the act of service. Um, if I'm going to be a conscious caregiver, 
I have to do my homework. I have to look at my own relationship to sickness, to aging, to death, um, to see what, um, how it affects me, what do I think about it, how do I feel about it, so that I'm not projecting my unconscious kinds of ideas onto the person that I'm serving. So it means um, really to, to really be with somebody else, I've got to look inside. Um, this is intimate work. We, we can't do this work from a distance. You know, professional warmth doesn't heal, you know. So uh, I think it's the exploration of our own suffering that really enables us to be of real assistance to another person. That's what allows us to touch their pain, you know, with, uh, with compassion instead of with pity. And I don't, it's, I don't think we can travel with other people um, in territory that we ourselves haven't explored. It doesn't mean that we have to know exactly what it is to be ill or dying, but we have to have some sense of it. We have to be able to make an empathetic bridge from our experience to theirs. That's the really important part, I think. Um, what do we have in our experience that will help us touch with mercy what's occurring for the other person? That, mm -hmm. For me, that's really essential. Yeah. That's really, uh, and, and really it, lovely. Yeah. Lovely, uh, um, you know, way of looking at it. And, you know, of course, uh, anything that we're feeling or get being triggered in ourselves, um, is going to take our, you know, our presence, um, you know, our conscious presence away from, you know, whatever is happening in the moment. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, did you have something else you wanted to add? Well, no, I just wanted to say that, you know, um, you know, what is it to be consciously present with somebody? It means to be really awake, right? To be um, bright and full of curiosity and wonder. Um, that's what it means. So imagine someone's coming into you. Imagine you're sick or, or perhaps facing a life-threatening illness, and someone comes into your room full of answers, full of their techniques, procedures, agendas, all of their knowledge. Yeah? There's not much room for anything else to emerge there. Yeah. So I think that one of the qualities of conscious presence is what in Zen or in, in Buddhism we call don't know mind. It's the mind that's um, ready, receptive, curious, full of wonder. What's it going to be like, you know, this experience? Um, when I'm dying, I, this is what I want next to me, someone with this kind of um, access, personal access to their own inner life, but also um, a willingness to be um, freely available to uh, the person that uh, that might be sick. Yeah. Yes, and I think that's a key, you know, it's a key phrase, you know, freely available, you know, to someone. And I think there's a tendency we've already touched on, you know, how um being with someone can trigger our own, you know, fear and and um you know, not knowing about um um you know, how to how to be with them. Um and that really stops people from from being that compassionate presence, you know, when someone we we know or someone we love is going through things. And I think it's not unusual for people who are then in that situation of, you know, the one who is with this, the severe illness to really feel kind of isolated, you know, that, um, you know, sort of um, – it, it prevents us um, not being willing to, you know, to just be that open presence and understanding that that is that that that's the most important thing. That willing to just be fully present with someone um, and and um, that um, support, you know, that that provides someone, uh, how key that is. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that what you're suggesting, well, is really important. 
you know, I, I was taking care of a dear friend of mine some years ago, a man dying of AIDS. And um, there were several of us that were part of his caregiving team, but this was my day. And, and this one morning, he lost his ability to stand, to speak in any intelligent way, to hold a fork. And this strange neurological phenomenon came over him. And, and it was my day to take care of him. And it was a long day. It was a really long day. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, but it's true, that I um, kept, you know, uh, I treated him like a child. I was paternalistic. I was um, uh, knowing. I was full of myself, you know, me, Mr. Hospice, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and these long day, this long day drew into the early hours of the morning, and John had these um, uh, anal fistulas and tremendous and, and, and ongoing diarrhea, and so taking care of him was a lot of work, and we'd move from the bath to the toilet and back to the bath again dozens of times. And to be honest with you, in the middle of the night, at three in the morning, I just wanted him to go to sleep and to wake up and somehow have his nightmare be over. Mm-hmm. And so... While I was washing my hands in between one of these moves, there's John sitting on the toilet. And I, I look in the vanity mirror, and I can see him mouthing something to me. He hasn't spoken all day, but he's almost whispering to me, you're trying too hard. You're trying too hard. And I was trying much too hard to be somebody, to be a helper, to be Mr. Hospice, you know. And, and I sat down beside the toilet and just cried. And that moment right there in the bathroom was the most intimate, the most real of our whole relationship, of our whole friendship. There we were, completely helpless together. Now, I'd been afraid to be helpless before that. I thought I had to be strong. I thought I had to know things. But there we were in this situation, totally helpless. And we didn't stay helpless forever. The situation showed us what to do next. But we couldn't have seen that until we were willing to enter into this territory. So I was willing to go into the territory where John was living, this territory of helplessness. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, one of, one of the challenges that we face when we're a caregiver is that we have a lot of prescribed ideas about what we think it's supposed to look like. You know, we have notions of perfection. We have that, that, that really are a kind of inherent aggression to ourselves, you know. We, we have, we get isolated. As caregivers, we get isolated, you know. Um, and there's an absence of humility in that stance, thinking that we have to do it all by ourselves. Uh, we get caught in our roles, which limits our creativity and our spontaneity and our generosity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I think that our job as caregivers is not just to attend to people's particular issues, but to be portals to a larger possibility. To a, to a bigger sense of what's occurring here. Not just to be problem solvers, to be portals to a larger possibility. But we can't do that if we get stuck um, in our own mishigash, as we say, you know. If we could just, you know, we can't do that unless we remain present, unless we continue to observe, feel, sense our experience directly, immediately, and then use that presence in the care of the person that's in front of us. 
Yes, and, and you have to realize that, you know, the, the way that you can access that creativity and those solutions and, you know, that ability to know what is right is not by coming in with some preconceived ideas, you know, about it, but really being present in the moment that that's the, that that's the key that opens the, um, the opportunity, um, to move forward. You know, in a different way, in uh, for the solution to present itself. You know, as you said. Um, yes, yes, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah. At the same time, we want to be. Um, you know, we we tend to put being and doing as opposites in this culture. Mm. But yeah. I actually think we should be while we're doing. You know, um, you know, there's be <laughs> present great. while we're in action. Great statement. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I walked into a, a patient's room and there was a volunteer there, very wonderful, long-time meditator. And I said, "How are we doing?" And he said, "Well, he's having a hard time, but we're just being present." And and I looked down and I saw the patient. The person was perspiring and and having a difficult time. And I said, "Well, let's be present, but let's get a cool rag and and and, and try and cool down her her fever." So, you know, let's be practical in our presence as well. Let's make let's let the presence show us what what you know what needs to be done. Let's be in the middle of our doing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so lovely. You know, let's be in our doing. Yeah. So we've come to the time for our break. Uh, you're listening to the Yoga Hour with special guest Frank Ostaseski, founder of the Meta Institute and co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project. Frank's website is metainstitute.org, which is M-E-T-T-A institute.org. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. When we come back from the break, we'll explore how to develop this compassionate presence that we've been discussing. We'll be right back. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. So there I was, staring at a closet overflowing with clothes, practically bursting at the seams in their polyester prison. I had ten minutes left to get dressed, and the stress was kicking in. Are turtlenecks still a thing? What about rhinestones? Where did I get this? Oh, my leggings from 1987. Ah, the scarves are attacking me. Sound familiar? Declutter your life and your closet with the Simple Living Challenge. It's a free 14-day challenge with powerful daily assignments to help you find more balance, freedom, and joy in life. Just go to SimpleLivingChallenge.com to sign up. Ooh, a cowboy hat. Hello, listeners. Did you know we've gone mobile? That's right. Your favorite Unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device. Now you can take us with you wherever you go. Using apps from Live 365 or Stitcher, you can listen to Unity online radio live or on demand. To learn more, visit www.unity.fm and click on Mobile Listening. Thank you. 
Does music open your heart and bring you peace and joy? Experience the sacredness of sound with Ramdesh Kaur as we travel the world of mantra, kundalini yoga, and devotional music. Join us for a journey into spirit, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Spirit Voyage Radio with Ramdesh. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. We now return to the Yoga Hour. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and my guest today is Frank Ostaseski. He's founder of the Meta Institute and co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project. So, Frank, um, we've been talking about the importance of being present, you know, with uh, someone and, you know, use in uh, drawing on our uh, compassion, which, as you've already said, is sort of an innate, you know, uh, something that we've been drawing on for, um, you know, for our whole evolution. Um, but there are practices that we can do that will help us to, you know, be more to be able to be that compassionate presence. So certainly in the yoga tradition, there are many practices that, <clears throat> excuse me, foster our ability to be present and to, you know, build our, our ability to be compassionate. So um, number one, <clears throat> excuse me, number one on my list would be a regular meditation practice, um, which really helps to develop a, you know, focused attention um, and the ability, this ability to be present that we've been talking about. And, you know, certainly for, for others and also for ourselves. Um, and then there, there are practices about uh, non-attachment, <clears throat> dispassion, um, which is when we uh, certainly are engaged and we are, you know, doing our best. And yet, um, we're not expecting or or being attached to a specific outcome. So this practice of non-attachment builds the ability to be calm regardless of the external situation. And yoga has a, another practice of surrendering our sense of the separate self, um, which allows us to identify uh, with the underlying uh, oneness of all that is um, and then, you know, being compassionate towards someone else is, you know, is natural because, you know, we are in touch with that underlying oneness that underlies everything. So, you know, of course, being, um, you know, compassionate towards someone else is being compassionate towards ourselves. So what are some of the practices that you've found to be useful in developing um, a compassionate presence? Yeah, well, I think all the things that you've just mentioned are, are extraordinary gifts, um, both to ourselves and to the person that we're accompanying. Um, you know, I, I think that there are uh, formal practices, spiritual practices, as you've suggested. Um, in Buddhism, we have also a giving and receiving practice, which is sometimes called Tonglin, which is where we exchange, if, in a way, the, uh, the suffering of the other for... Uh, for we transform the suffering of the other through our own prayers and practice. Um, so I think that there are 
numerous kinds of practices. You know, in, in the Theravadan tradition of Buddhism, you know, we repeat a series of phrases. You know, may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. So we really focus on the individual. We focus on this deep wish or or um, intention, and we repeat the phrases. And the repeating of the phrases builds a certain amount of concentration and stabilizes us as well. So those are formal practices that we can do. But I think also... You know, reading the newspaper is compassion practice. Mm. Um, you know, being willing to see the suffering of the world. You know, compassion emerges out of contact with suffering. Not much contact with suffering, not much compassion. Yeah? Mm. So the willingness to, to, to face our own suffering, to face the suffering of the world around us, I think that these are practices that we do in our everyday life that really help us uh, enormously uh, to be with others. Um, you know, if I'm going to um, build an empathetic bridge to another person, which for me is the, the gateway to compassion, um, I have to understand something about my experience. Otherwise, the other person will sniff out my insincerity and my sentimentality, and they will know that I'm just guessing about their experience. So if I say to someone, I understand, I really have to, um, I have to have done my own homework again. You know, I have to have really taken a look at this. So, you know, compassion meditations cultivate compassion toward ourselves, toward others, um, helping us. To, uh, other practices that help us put a human face on suffering. I think, like reading the news, the meditation practices like Tang Lin and those that you described, I think, are uh, really great ways of cultivating presence, compassion, etc. And then on, an, on another, you know, just kind of a, uh, I don't know if I want to call it mundane level, um, but just listening, you know, just to be fully present and listening. And, and in my, you know, career as a physician, I'm a general internist. I found that this was one of just the most important things and so interesting to me that I think the number one complaint across the United States, um, you know, about people's doctors is my doctor doesn't listen to me. And, and it just was so interesting to me that it was felt to be, um, a rare thing, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that I, um, focus so much on just really trying is it because it calls on us to be present in the way that we talked about in the first section you really have to be uh, there uh, with the person and really listening with our whole our whole selves so what have you found about about listening do you um, is that been your experience as well yeah absolutely um, you know for me listening Laurel is an act of love you know, it's the shortest distance between two people, particularly when there's conflict. Um, we did a study some years ago at San Francisco General about um, the amount of time that physicians took with patients when they were giving them a terminal diagnosis. And we interviewed both physicians and patients, and the, the uh, difference was astounding. From the patient's point of view, the physician spent three to four minutes with them, giving them a terminal diagnosis. Physicians believed and even documented they spent a much longer time. Mm-hmm. But the patient's perspective was that the physician, the physician wasn't really with them for very long. That doesn't mean that they weren't there just for a period of time, but they weren't really present in the way that you've been describing. So, yes, I think listening is central, central to all this work. You know, we often speak about listening generously. You know, listening without agenda, listening without criticality, 
was saying not just to find out how we should reply, <laughs> which is how we're normally listening, right. but, to really, <laughs> but to really let it in, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. years ago I, I had- used to produce... Uh, Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it has to be more than just you know, well, you know, a pause while you're waiting to say something that you want to say. <laughs> really, really can't be. You know, that's not really listening, obviously. Right. I mean, a lot of what we go listening is our taking the quiet time to figure out what we're going to say next. You know, that's right. it's not actually including or receiving what the other person has to say. I'm sorry to say that I used to produce television shows years ago, and. Um, in, in those days, we had one camera, and we'd go out and interview the individual who we were interviewing, and then that person would go away, and we would then film the interviewer doing what we called nodders, in other words, nodding their head up and down in a way that appeared like they were paying attention, and then <laughs> oh we would gosh. splice the two together. And so often, what still happens on television, you can see it, you can notice it, but I think that we're doing that oftentimes in our everyday experiences with one another, with our family members, but certainly it happens at the bedside as well. We're nodding, you know, as if, as if we are paying attention, but in fact we're not, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's essential. You know, there's an old Yiddish saying, which I've always loved, which is sometimes we need a story more than food. And, um, you know, stories connect us with each other. They, they, they help reveal the resources that we need in our, in our troubled world, and, and they give us a critical sense of meaning. But if someone's going to tell their story, someone else has to be there to hear it, to listen to it. That's the other side of the equation that's, that's really essential. So listening generously. You know, if I was to ask you, Laurel, when you've been mm, hurt or when you needed someone else's assistant, assistance, what really helped you? What really helped you? What did the other person do? What did they say? What was the quality of their presence that really helped you? What would you say? Uh, well, you know, right away, it's just that ability to be present. You know, someone's ability, you know, you can tell when someone's there or when someone's not, you know, really there, even though they may be physically present. Um, so to, to begin whatever interaction, you know, um, you know, maybe happening, but to begin it with a person's this feeling of, um, of their concern, um, you know, what's going on? Um, but that, that it's really, you know, combined with their ability to to really that they're really listening because as i said you know everyone can tell um when that's happening and when it's not yeah yeah i mean it's it's curious that we say it that way but it's true it's a kind of intuitive sense isn't it that Mm -hmm. we know when the other's really listening to us Mm -hmm. um a few years ago i had a heart attack uh, while i was teaching a program on compassionate presence to a group of physicians and nurses and um, mm-hmm. it involved a triple bypass. It was a very big deal, very life-threatening. And um, afterwards, I was recovering in the hospital. And these were good people in the hospital, wonderful people, great hearts, deep dedication to their work. But I often found that when they came in the room to be with me, they had more of a relationship with the monitors that they were bringing yes. into the room than they did with me. Mm-hmm. Um, these were people who were driven mercilessly by the systems in which they worked, oftentimes um, you know, with high expectations, very few resources, and being understaffed. But I could smell, I could smell almost when someone opened the door, whether or not they were a person I could trust. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it, it had to do with how they made contact with me. You know, when I, when I go into a room where someone is sick, 
I realized that my contact starts really before I enter the room with them. It begins with my own contact with myself. And then especially when I cross that threshold into the room, you know, when I, when I step across that doorway, that seems to be a really important moment. And so for me, I gather myself there. I gather my attention. I, I literally pause at the threshold. I bring my attention to the body, sensing it. I become aware of my feeling states I'm in. I notice the quality of my mind. And then I have a really ridiculous ritual that I do. I look to see where are the hinges on the door. Are they on the right or are they on the left? And I step through. If they're on the right, I step through with my right foot. Now, this could be considered obsessive compulsive disorder or <laughs> mindfulness. Yeah. You, you pick. But yeah. it's just a way of me becoming mindful that I'm entering into a new world. You know? And Susan Sontag wrote years ago about the land of the ill and the land of the well. And when we go into a room where someone's sick, we're entering a new territory. And it's got different rules and a different language and a different rhythm. And so how we make contact matters. So I first contact the person with my eyes as I scan the room and look to see what's needed. I, I touch with the tone of my voice. Am I speaking in a way that's you know, um, not overly aggressive uh, and gentle? Um, I touch you know, uh, long before I ever make physical contact with that person. Yeah? So all of those practices, we could say, of mindfulness or of compassionate presence um, are essential um, before any dialogue happens, before we even say, how are you doing today? You know, we, we're touching a long time before that. And, and, uh, and those are another way, I would say, that we listen. You know, it's another way that we really receive information from the other person. So, yeah, it's really, really so, beautiful to include that as, as part of listening. So I, I love the story about the hinges on the door. And for me, <laughs> um, as I was mostly working in a, in an outpatient environment in my clinic, um, for me, it was actually, uh, cause the door was closed, you know, with a patient room with the patient inside, the door was always closed. So for me, it was, um, when I reached my hand to, to touch the doorknob, when I was reaching for the doorknob, mm-hmm. that was my prompt, you know, to really. Yeah. Um, Beautiful. You know, and it is, it's nice to have, especially for those of us who, you know, who are, um, you know, where it's, it's, um, we're not just seeing one, you know, sick friend, but we're involved in caregiving, it, you know, because you can get totally caught up in the day. So it's wonderful to have these little habits, even though you said perhaps it can open the, the uh, door to being called OCD. But it really, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a way of using those environmental prompts, you know, to really remind us of our intention, you know, is really, because yeah. um, when I think about, well, how do we become better listeners? You know, and a lot of it is the intention to be a better listener. And then you're looking for ways to remind yourself, you know, of how to be a better listener. And and I think you and I each have (laughs) offered one, you know, that uh, a way of really bringing ourselves into the moment, you know, regardless of what other ever crises may be happening, other things that are happening in our life, um, just take that moment to uh, center ourselves. Um, Sure. I wanted to make sure to talk with you about burnout because I feel like burnout is such a huge, uh, it's a huge thing, both, you know, within, uh, the caring professions, the helping professions, uh, for people who are, uh, caregivers, primary caregivers for a, a relative. Um, it, it's just really, really common to become, you know, overwhelmed and, uh, fatigued, um, which can then lead us to be, 
you know, not fully present, can lead us to be short-tempered, um, even to appear cold uh, with the one that we are, you know, caring for as a way of trying to, you know, take care of ourselves. So, so um, what, what has your experience been uh, with burnout and any um, advice or suggestions that you might, you know, have about um, how we can take better care of ourselves so that we can be present for others? Yeah, good for you. Uh, it's a great question, and, and 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 I appreciate that you're helping us to reach beyond just healthcare professionals, for example, or providers. You know, most of the care in this country, we forget about this, but most of the care in this country is not happening by healthcare providers. It's happening by family members and friends. You know, when you think about, for example, most of the people that are being cared for with Alzheimer's in this country, it's family members, people who were never trained to do this, right? Right. And they're trying to do it in the midst of everything else that they're doing. You know, it's not their full-time job, but in a way it is. So, you know, everybody gets, you know, faces the challenges of burnout, whether they're a professional or a family caregiver or a friend. Um, one of the things that I think, um, one of the causes for burnout that we often just don't talk about is that we don't really attend to our own needs, you know, uh, we get lost in our notions of what a caregiver should be and how they should behave, etc. So I have to recognize that I have needs in this situation as a caregiver. You know, when people would come to be volunteers at Zen Hospice, one of the questions I would ask them is, um, how does this work serve you? And they, of course, would say, oh, no, it's not about me, it's about the other person. <laughs> All right. But I would say, no, it's not. You know, it's also about you. And if you don't know what that need is, you will unconsciously project it onto the people that you serve, and um, and you won't be helping them. So, so burnout comes from um, not being clear about our own needs in the situation. Um, it often comes from uh, an absence of balance, as you've suggested, with our own caregiving skills, and we'll come back to that in a second. Um, but it also has to do with not having a deep contact with compassion. You know, when we are not sourcing our work in compassion, uh, oftentimes what happens is the um, we're caring for other people in order to eliminate, excuse me, eliminate our personal distress. So when I see someone who's hurting, sometimes my compassionate heart comes forward, and that's a natural and appropriate response. But sometimes what happens is I'm so exhausted, I'm so tired, that I start doing things to them to eliminate my distress. And that's not so helpful to the patient or to us. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that, and, and we should come back, we'll come back to compassion, but one of the things that we have to reckon with is when we're dealing with difficult situations like our mother having Alzheimer's or we're a nurse working in a big city hospital, we have to understand that the normal methods that people have for coping and readjusting and finding balance are simply not going to be sufficient. Coming home and having a glass of wine and watching the TV won't be enough. Right. Uh, when we're encountering suffering like this on a daily basis, uh, we need other practices. We need the kinds of practices you mentioned a while ago, mindfulness, um, practices that, you know, build pro-social behaviors that cultivate our capacity for loving kindness and compassion. Uh, we need self-care practices. Usually when we start talking about self-care, people get worried. 
because they think it's something <laughs> that they have to add to their list. And their list is already too big, you know. That's right. they got a lot going on. They don't have time for more self-care, you know. Right. So when we start to really see that self-care is, um, one, an internal process oftentimes, and of course it is about appropriate boundaries, etc. But it's really about... Um, Paying continuous, kind attention to ourself and the other as we're in the midst of the experience. Um, so our care happens while we were caregiving. It's not mm. something we do later on, but the way in which we approach our care. I think that's an important way to think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are that's we actually great, available, a, present? Yeah. Right. You know, that's a great... Um, that's a great way of having a self-care practice be something that can be an ongoing, um, you know, practice. And it's, it's not something that you have to wait and do later, you know, so that, oh. um, by having it come from that, you know, compassion, uh, from that point of compassion, then we are also compassionate towards ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it begins with simple gestures, you know, how we get out of bed in the morning, how we stand in the shower, where we put our feet on the floor. Those are all practices of mindfulness that don't require us to sit cross-legged like a pretzel, but in fact help us to be mindful in every activity. And that's where, uh, you know, the subject that you've been uh, encouraging so much, conscious presence, really is important. How do we bring it into everyday activity? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not something other than, but something that we include. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so um, let's turn now. I, I did want to ask you, since you have had the founding director of the Zen Hospice Project, so obviously you're working with, you know, with uh, um, issues of death and dying for, you know, quite a while. Um what experience uh, or what advice, rather, would you give to someone who's considering getting involved, you know, in uh, death and dying work, uh, maybe out of a, a need in their own uh, family uh, or, um, you know, a friend who may be going through a process um, or just maybe in general as part of their service work? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, everyone has to find their own way. Advice is cheap, but you know, I, generally speaking, I, I would encourage people to, you know, um, go and explore. You know, find out. Get some information. Go down to your local hospice. Consider volunteering there. Talk to other volunteers. Try to understand something about the experience, you know. Um, uh, I think we have to here again really look and see what our intention is as we do this. Oftentimes after, for example, the death of someone we love, we might be motivated to go and help other people. And that could be a really wholesome and wonderful um, intention. But it also might be a way of avoiding our own grief or sense of loss. So we have to really look and see, you know, is this the right time for me? Is this a service not only to the other person but to me as well? I think that that's important. Um, I think also keep it ordinary. Keep it. Don't make it into a special thing, you know. Um, one of the challenges that I think we face in caring for people who are dying in this country is that we put them into a separate category. We see, we describe, a, um, we even use the term dying person. And mm. It's not really who the individual is. You know, they're going through a process, a process of living and dying. But it isn't all that they are. 
so remembering that, um, you know, in some ways it's very, it can be very ordinary. You know, you sit and you watch the Wheel of Fortune on TV together. And, and uh, I'm very good at the puzzles. You know, I've learned over the years to be really good at those. In other words, just simple human kindness is oftentimes what's most needed in these kinds of situations. And we're all capable of that. So um, uh, last comment I would make on this is it's probably a really good idea to get familiar with death before we find ourselves on our own deathbed. You know, and volunteering, being with people who are dying is a way, of course, that we can learn about that. Um, uh, the, the way we prepare for our dying, our own dying, is by getting familiar with it now. To imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the clarity of mind, the, uh, the emotional stability, the physical strength to do the work of a lifetime is a kind of absurd gamble. Right. So if we want to learn <laughs> yes. about dying, yeah, you know, so if we want to learn about dying, we, we learn about it now, you know, and, yes. and, uh, and, and we can learn about it through by, by being of service to others, yeah. by really caring for others. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in, in um, American life today, it is remarkable how little, little opportunity there is for anybody to be aware of the dying process at all, because it's such a... Um, it's such a separate thing, you know, here in the United States and um, often occurs in hospitals, despite, you know, what the patient's yeah. wishes might be. So we talked at the beginning before we started the program about stories, you know, and about how mm. stories really, you know, bring bring home um, some of these things we're trying to talk about more than just, you know, a, a conversation. So do you have a story of uh, someone that you've, uh, that you've been involved with, um, you know, some experience that you've had that, that touched you um, in some particular way? I mean, you shared the one about your, you know, your friend yeah. and, um, and AIDS at the beginning, but would you like to share another story with our listeners? Yeah, sure. I love stories. And, and also, you know, they, the stories are great because we can enter them wherever we need to. Um, mm-hmm. there, there was a fellow that I worked with, an uh, African-American man. I, I'm walking. We had a uh, hospice unit at Laguna Honda Hospital, which is a large long-term care facility, uh, 1,100 beds. And the wards are open wards, bed after bed after bed, so 30 beds in one room. And I'm walking down this gauntlet of bed ones one day, and there's this older African-American man who's clearly actively dying. So I go over and I sit down beside him, and I said, um, in a very straightforward way, you look like you're working really hard. And he said, yeah, just got to get there. And he points toward the sky. And I said, oh, I said, uh, if I promise to keep up, can I go? And he said, yeah, and he grabbed my hand. And I said to him, I, I didn't bring my glasses. Um, I can't see there into the distance. Can you describe it for me? And he describes a sloping hillside to a kind of plateau. Now, this is a man who's actively dying. He's literally in the, in the last few hours of his life. And uh, I said, do you want to go? Yeah. And he, we start walking up this hill together. And he's perspiring. And he's breathing, chain-stoke breathing, but he's breathing with great difficulty. And all of this is, is happening at one moment. And so I said to him, can you see there further into the distance? And he describes for me a little one-room red schoolhouse with three steps and a door. You know? This is a man who was born and raised in Mississippi. And... Um, now, I could have said to him at this point, you're disoriented times three. This is a result of the morphine and the brain metastasis and all of these kinds of things. And here you are at Laguna Honda. But actually, that isn't what's happening. What's happening is we're walking to a little red schoolhouse. 
So I said, there's the door. You want to go in? Yeah. I said, can I go? No. I always ask permission. I said, okay, then you go. Go ahead. And a few minutes later, he dies very, very peacefully. For me, this is a story about the sacred in dying. All of us have a story about what happens to us after we die. Some of them are frightening stories. Some of them are comforting stories. But the sacred, for me, is not something that um, uh, is found elsewhere. It's found right in the midst of things. It's in the ordinariness of things. Uh, The sacred is not something new or different, but it's a way in which we see. It's a way in which the perspective in which we hold. And the process of dying and the process of caring for people who are dying is a sacred practice. It's a practice that um, is characterized by mastery, meaning, and mystery. Mastery, good skills, effective tools, missed, uh, meaning, the uh, helping people to find out what the purpose and value of this life is, and mystery, the land of unanswerable questions. Yeah? The territory where we don't know so much, and we have to hold hands as we walk through it. Yeah? So... Um, Wow, that was just really beautiful. Really great story. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Just beautiful. Huh? And this is happening all the time across America everywhere. And I think yes. that what we have to realize is that we just have to learn to listen and be available to those kinds of experiences. Mm. And, uh, Coming back to that presence once again. Yeah. So, Frank, we only have about another minute or so, but um, I did want to give you a chance uh, uh, to say just a little bit of about about your book that's coming soon. I understand uh, um, five invitations. So, I'm assuming it's about kind of the sort of things we've been talking about. And, and when is it going to be published? It's coming out in uh, the spring of 2017 from Macmillan Flatiron Books. is an imprint of Macmillan pub, uh, Publishing. And the five invitations are really five slogans, we could say, that I developed as guidelines for working with the, guy, the dying. But I think they have a relevance for all the rest of us in living a full, rich, happy, wise life. You know, uh, I'll tell them to you. That the, the first one is, welcome everything, push away nothing. The second is, bring your whole self to the experience. The third is don't wait. The fourth is find a place of rest in the middle of things. And the fifth is cultivate don't know mind. And sometime I'll come back on your show and we'll have a chance to talk about those in in greater depth. Oh, that would be lovely, Frank. Um, And with that, uh, we are toward the end of the program. So um, it has really been a joy to have you on the program, Frank. Thank you so much uh, for coming. So, uh, well, thank Frank, you for having me. Yeah. Frank Ostaseski has been our guest today. He's the founder of Meta Institute and co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. He's the author of Being a Compassionate Companion audio series and the soon-to-be-published Five Invitations. You can find out more about Frank's work at his website, metainstitute.org. And again, meta is M-E-T-T-A institute.org. Um, Upcoming event at uh, CSE is the uh, Sheltering Tree Benefit for the Compassionate Care Ministry at CSE. This is going to take place on August 6th, and you can uh, get your tickets and find out more details about it at csecenter.org.
Please join me next week uh, for the program Yoga's Powerful Tools for Rejuvenation and Healing when my guest will be Nishala Joy Davy, a pioneer in the field of alternative healing and renowned yoga expert. She developed the yoga portion of the Dean Ornish Program for Reversing Heart Disease and co-founded the award-winning Commonweal Cancer Program. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. You can find out more about CSE at csecenter.org. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour at iTunes. I look forward to being with you again when Yogacharya O'Brien is away. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all that you meet. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Join us every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, for practical, purposeful methods for spiritually conscious living every day. The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by friends and members of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California, a ministry in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization, www.csecenter.org. Request free literature by writing info at csecenter.org. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. think of peace, we may imagine ourselves sitting high on a mountaintop at daybreak or walking on a secluded beach while the sun sets. But peace isn't a luxury reserved only for special occasions or special places. It's an essential tool for daily living. My peace isn't dependent upon a particular place or event. At any time and in any circumstance, I can shift my focus from the appearances of life to the reality of peace within myself. Park Cousins said, How things look on the outside of us depends on how things are on the inside of us. So if you don't like what you're seeing around you, paint a different picture within you. Peace. What I see is what I get. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www 
www.unity.org. Just like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'll light a candle in your name. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology. Available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. 